The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinger, joined by my amazing and lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going well. Thanks, Brandon. How about you? Good. So I, I know that we talked about Zoe some time back, and we talked about your results, which is great. And I'm just wondering if the, the story picks up from there. It does. Or maybe like my experience with Zoe helped bring to the forefront my obsession with food. So I actually started one of my kind of therapy sessions chats saying, I might have an eating disorder or dealing with some disordered eating because I just think about food a lot. I'm pretty happy with my body, except for an August when I'm in a bikini for most of the month, and then I'm not happy at all with my body, and I have given birth to two kids. I'm, I'm very ashamed as well, by the way, when I wear my bikini, so it's uh, <laughs> maybe a common, common issue. I think. Yeah, but otherwise, for 11 months out of the year, I'm pretty okay with my weight and my body shape, but I'm just like, I just can't stop thinking about food. And also, like, I've spent a lot of time being very angry at my husband, or not, ang- angry is not the word, but I don't know if you know about <laughs> it's this. It's angry. I'm sure it's angry. <laughs> frustrated. Like there's this kind of philosophy that in every relationship, you have a few issues that you can never resolve. And you either have to decide that you're willing to pay the price of admission for those issues or not, but you're never going to find common ground. And food is a huge one of those issues in our marriage. And I used to just think that he was either stupid, willfully ignorant, or (laughs) wildly irresponsible. He would let the kids eat Haribo and he would openly say he didn't like vegetables. And he's like, it's not that big a deal to have a slice of white toast. And I was just like, (laughs) I'm going to die. You're going to die. We're killing the children. How can you do this? So first it was like the frustration of why won't people eat more fava beans and chickpeas in my family? And they just don't understand what they're missing. Because I genuinely like vegetables and beans and pulses. And then through the course of conversation, I realized that although I know we're all going to die and I spent a lot of time thinking about my death and therefore my life and making the best out of the time that we have here, what I hadn't realized is I absolutely did not want to have whatever I die for being my fault. Right. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. (laughs) Sounds like a good goal. It is a good goal, except it also is completely controlling my life. And then also is like, it's not only is it not going to be my fault, what I eat that causes my death. I also don't want it to be my fault of what the children eat to cause their death in the future. And I read this book called The Glucose Goddess. And in her preamble, she's talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and how it's now become prevalent and their kids that are like under the age of 10 who are being diagnosed Mm -hmm. with it. And it's this epidemic. Processed foods and all that. Processed foods. And then I look at my two like skinny children and think, oh my God, 
they must have non-alcoholic fatty liver <laughs> disease. <laughs> Right. <laughs> because we're the NHS and we're in the UK and we never test for bloods and our children don't go to pediatricians, they could be dying of all of these problems and I would never know. And then they eat another piece of Haribo and my stomach just like eats itself. So anyhow, I have now realized that I might have a little bit of medical anxiety wrapped around food. And for anybody who has read high performance teams, where the entire first half of the book is about the egg machine. And so I'm now switching into business talk. In the egg machine, which is basically a metaphor for a business, you have your inputs, you have trapdoors to see what's happening, which are your KPIs, and then you have your outputs. And that exact same thing is my medical anxiety. So the output is death, but a preventable death and disease that if you eat well, the input is food. And because we're in the NHS and we get no blood tests and no sort of guidance of whether or not we're doing things well and our children never see pediatricians, I have no trapdoors and I have no KPIs. So all I can control is the inputs. This is the operation side coming out here. It is, yeah. And so now I'm like, ah, my husband is a normal person and he's not worrying about these things because he does not have the same level of anxiety that I do. And I also just never realized that I was walking around so worried. So I just feel really much lighter now. So you've recognized this, you've embraced it, and now mindset-wise, you're in a different position. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I'm in a different position. I'm like, that is anxiety speaking. Okay. Ah, uh, the voice of that anxiety. Haribo will not kill my children. Just because children in America have fatty liver disease does not mean that my children have undiagnosed, undetected fatty liver disease with no right, other right. symptoms and are perfectly healthy. Yeah. I know we're about to get on to Ahmed, but one last thing about another way that my health anxiety has manifested itself is the reason why I have gray hair. I get a lot of comments about the fact that I have gray hair because like everybody thinks that it's their business to tell women and comment about women's bodies. <laughs> So I get people on the streets like, you have such a pretty face, too bad you've let yourself go. What? Somebody's actually said that to you. Multiple somebodies. And also then I get people who are like, why are you making such a political statement? What are you trying to say? I do embrace the politicalness of my hair now, but it wasn't my original intent. My original intent was I had one friend with breast cancer and one friend who was dying and sadly died of bowel cancer. And every time I went to dye my hair, my scalp really hurt and was painful for a few days. I'd get sores. And I just thought, what if this causes skin cancer? And then I die. And then I regret the vanity of dyeing my hair that caused my death. And that's why I stopped dyeing my hair. Just if anybody ever wondered. <laughs> it is hard for me to imagine random people on the street commenting on your gray hair, notwithstanding people that actually know you would actually do the same thing. You know, both sound kind of foreign to me, I guess, as a white male, 50-year-old, I guess, in some sense. Maybe this is a bit of a high degree of genderizing that happens. Absolutely. But now, if anybody was always too afraid to ask me why I have gray hair, now you have the answer. At least we have some answers here, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that story out as our part three in the Bethany saga of her health and food consumption we will move on to our episode. We've got a great tactical episode for today. It is the bane of every CEO's existence, legal and enterprise contracts. So we've got the perfect guest for this, I think, which is Ahmed Badra. He is the CEO of GoCardless. 
And he is the former legal counsel at Microsoft and actually was the general counsel for GoCardless before his current role as COO. And we'll talk to him in a few minutes. But before we get to that, Bethany, I just wanted to talk to you about this topic of enterprise contracts, legal, and some of the pain that we go through as CEOs that's associated to that. And I'll just kick us off with a bit of just like a thought stream for you. I'm curious what you think here. But for me, I've always uh, had two objectives when it comes to legal contracts in particular, which is number one, you want to minimize time delays. And number two, you want to minimize risk. And there's a couple of things that I tend to do when I join companies in terms of trying to make that happen. The first one is really just having a solid B2B SaaS enterprise template contract. And I usually work with outside counsel historically. There's a company called Harper James. And Harper James is really good because they've done all sorts of B2B SaaS contracts in all different forms and permutations. And they have a really good sense of what constitutes a reasonable B2B SaaS contract. And it's extraordinarily important in my eyes to get to that generic place in the contract where you're minimizing risk, but you're also minimizing red lines and not asking for unreasonable things as part of your template. So what you want to try to avoid at the outset, if at all possible, is any red lines whatsoever coming from a legal person. So that's the first part of my miniature playbook. On that first part, Bethany, I'm just curious uh, what you think or what your experience has been in terms of templating. Absolutely agree in principle. Wish I'd had or had asked you that question before we went into the entire contracting at peak the first time. Can't remember which firm we used, and it's good that I don't remember which firm because I won't name and shame. They were very happy to help us with our terms, lots of time. And then we got our first bill, and it was something like 25K, and we still didn't actually have the contract. So I would definitely recommend your firm for everybody else who might be using their general outside counsel for this. The second bit of the playbook that I employ is making sure that the red lines that a sales rep can actually accept or change with a certain uh, set of parameters, we try to set that as clearly as possible. So on the ground, the sales rep dealing with a particular client can actually modify certain things within the contract that are very pre-established in the sense. And then equally, when it rolls up to the VP of sales, the VP of sales has a, a greater set of flexibility in terms of that contract, in terms of things that we've predefined that are flexible within a certain range. And making sure that's distinctly clear both to the sales rep and the VP of sales is obviously critically important that they understand what it is, what's flexible, why that's the case. It really, again, pushes things down where you have a solid template where you don't have a lot of red lines. And then when you do have red lines, the sales rep and the VP of sales have a certain empowerment level to get stuff solved, essentially. So it doesn't have to be looked at by myself and it doesn't have to be looked at by anybody else, uh, hopefully. If it goes past that point, obviously it has to get booted up. And this is where the real pain happens, I think, where yourself and the VP of sales have to get on a call with outside legal counsel and then start deciphering legal jargon in this case, which is always quite painful. But, but I think that empowerment piece for the people that are dealing with the customers is a useful tool in this respect. It's a useful tool, but really hard to do. Because I find either you have people who just don't want to and keep pushing it up anyhow, like not comfortable, don't feel comfortable, or people who take that and decide to push the boundaries and are just like, oh, well, I just negotiated all of it because I thought I could. <laughs> really, I've ended up, I think, dealing with both extremes more than the people who stay in the center. 
Yeah, and there's nothing worse than a contract being pushed out with all sorts of garbage in it at the last second, in particular when it's the end of the quarter, quotas need to be filled, contracts need to be signed, and then you're sitting there with a contract that doesn't make any sense. And what to do with it at that stage is extremely difficult. And I I think I've never seen a VP of finance more pissed off in my life than at that point where they've seen a contract with silly things in it and it's the end of the quarter and you know, you're between a rock and a hard place as to what to do. The last bit is usually in contracts, the two things that are always problematic are indemnity and limitation of liability. And I think the same process here is important, which is thinking through very carefully from the company's point of view, what is your default position when it comes to those two things? And what's the deal breaker position in particular? Because oftentimes you'll be pushed by a larger organization that are demanding certain things from you and knowing where your deal breaker position is at the outset is incredibly useful because, again, if you don't want to delay contracts, it's great to have that because you don't have to sit there and have a three-hour discussion with whomever to try to figure out what is your default position as part of a contracting process as opposed to just knowing it up front saying, look, that is a deal breaker. It's not going to work. And regardless of who it is, we're not going to move forward or the converse where you know what it is and they've pushed you hard. You're like, fine, we'll accept that as it is right now because we know what our position is in that case. Absolutely. And also, don't be afraid to stick with your position. Like I, I, of course, I'm probably just forgetting something, but there's nothing that comes to mind in my career where either side has walked away because of contract negotiations or because of indemnity. That has not been the deal breaker in, re- in actuality. Even really big companies that absolutely swear that they can't move on this can. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, I feel like it always ends up in that place. The legal is at an impasse at some point. And neither side is willing to back down. And then it has to go back to, you know, more senior people or the commercial people to come to a resolution and accept a certain risk level. And they do. Okay. So with that, why don't we transition over to our conversation with Ahmed Badra and let's do that. I am delighted to welcome Ahmed Badra to the podcast. Ahmed is the COO at GoCardless. He is a trained lawyer and had a career as a lawyer before transitioning into being a COO. And when I spoke with Ahmed earlier, I found it absolutely fascinating that at his time at Microsoft, he single-handedly helped well, multi-billions of transactions a year. And I don't know, as a former CRO, I felt like our legal team of many more people than that could handle in the millions of transactions a year and made them cry more times than it should. So I just was desperate to hear what Ahmed had done, the systems and processes that he'd learned, and his experiences taking that to go cardless. Could you tell us a bit about working at Microsoft, landing at GoCardless as the first in-house counsel and realizing you knew so very much that you could reuse again, (laughs) that I suspect none of us know. You know, there were some pretty basic ideas that they'd implemented very well. So for example, uh, they had very clear authority as to who could agree what in their contracts. That was called the empowerment guide. So, you know, if you were an AE on the sales team, this is where you could flex in terms of Yes, the commercial side of things. So what discount could you give on what basis? But also on the legal terms. So could an AE go and decide to change the governing law or not? 
And it was all about delegating that authority as far down the chain as made sense. And obviously, lawyers like have a specific skill set generally. They're not necessarily the best placed or the best value to deal with a lot of these, what some would consider legal amendments. So Microsoft also had another department, which was business desk. You know, this exists at, at many companies. But the business desk there was also very empowered to make a lot of what would be considered legal changes. And they were held accountable not just for making sure that the contracts were compliant, but also for delivering revenue. So, you know, they were also compensated differently to how you might expect, whereas the AEs and the sales team were were compensated on, on the revenue. So, you know, there was this very clear cascade of empowerment. There was a great business desk team, which could take a lot of the load off the legal team, allowing me as the lawyer to focus on the stuff, which was really weird. And I had a really great partnership there with the woman that I worked at a business desk, Victoria, quite a lot where, you know, she would often come to me with an idea as to how we needed to get a contract over the line. And then my job as the lawyer was really to make that work from a legal and contractual standpoint and to make sure we kind of avoided any booby traps on the weird stuff that we were doing. It was great in that I got to see all that machinery. I got to help the really tricky deals across the line. And the other thing that they did was they gave a lot of freedom to the lawyers. So yes, there was the empowerment guide, but we could kind of go somewhat out of the bounds of that on the legal side to deal with those odd issues, which might not be scalable in the same way that the other empowerment topics were. So we've got the the empowerment guide, which from an A level, uh, kind of upwards, really describes what they're empowered to decide in a sense, in terms of accepting red lines, accepting business terms, and so on. Can you tell me a bit more around what the business desk provided to you? And then also, there were some special incentives in place for some of these other groups. I'm just curious what those incentives were. What they tended to provide, and it's something else actually that I, so one thing that I carried forward from Microsoft to go Carlos was this concept of empowerment and then trying to enable the business to get on with stuff without needing to involve me or any other lawyer. The other thing which I tried to carry through was the way that the contracts were structured. Like Microsoft, as you can imagine, they're selling a lot of products. They had horrendously complicated agreements in some places, which I didn't want to copy. But one thing which I think I found incredibly useful and much more efficient than the usual process, you refer to red lines. One thing that we didn't do was red lines. Red lines, I think, are like catnip to lawyers. They see it as like a, it's like open day on the contract. And oh, I'm going to insert a comma here. I'm going to change this little thing over here. And I don't like reasonable. I'm going to use like all reasonable. Uh, and they just go wild. And for me, that is not what a contract negotiation should be about. But it should be about the principles of the deal that you're negotiating. What do you want? What do I want? How do we get to that position? So the way that I think Microsoft dealt with that was they did everything in an amendment. So he would say, clause four is deleted and replaced with this. You know, and if clause four was dealing with like invoicing schedule, then the new clause four would totally replace that invoicing schedule. And that meant that it was very easy to see what's changed. It was also much easier to kind of have the negotiation on the actual, on clause four, as opposed to some of the very specific wording in that. What Vix would provide me with often is like her version of the amendment and the business rationale for why those things are being changed. And where we often work together was, you know, there'd be like 10 standard amendments in there. So within her role as a senior business desk person, 
she had the empowerment to go and change these 10 things. And along with the empowerment, there was also standard language. You know, so she could just go and copy the language for governing law. She changed from exclusive jurisdictions, non-exclusive, fine. Like that's all standard. And then there'll be one where it's like when using Microsoft Windows in their site X, then the following terms apply. And that will be the one where there's something which is a bit unusual that we want to agree with that business because of the nature of their business, their usage of whatever the product was that they were buying, where we were happy to go and try and reflect that contractually. Now, Vix wasn't a lawyer, but I think she was actually probably better at drafting than I was in the vast majority of cases because she's done it so many times and she knew the contract so well. Often my role there would just be to check that there weren't any weird gotchas in terms of the structuring when it comes to like how you interpret that legally or that we weren't you know, stepping outside the bounds of what we can do within contract law or whatever. That's why that was such a kind of productive relationship because she knew the contracts really well, I knew the law really well, and we kind of came together to just get those amendments over the line. If we just take a step back for a second, uh, I'm very curious. You come from a, a legal background into the CEO role, and I guess my curiosity is, when you think about your chief operating officer role and what you actually do within GoCardless, coming from that background and being paired with somebody like Alan Carnes as a chief people officer, who obviously also has chops in the CEO arena as well, what does that look like? What are you responsible for? What does your space look like? What does an Alan Carnes space look like a little bit? And then how do you cross over and collaborate? Great question. And, you know, obviously I was asking myself the same thing when I joined to make sure we don't kind of just put heads on stuff. But I think the interesting thing about the CRO role is that it's almost total lack of definition. You know, I think it's one of those roles where it's highly defined by the company's needs, by the individual's skill set as well. If I look back at how I came to be in the role, there's a few like important bits of context. So one is that as a company, we've been around for 11 years. Over that time, obviously, we've grown in terms of employee size, in terms of product complexity, in terms of geography, in terms of revenue, kind of all all those good metrics. But we stayed throughout that time very functionally structured. So we had the finance team and the legal team and the sales team and the X team and the Y team. And we were trying to do more and more things as a company and try and do those things at bigger scale. You know, a story you've heard before the functional things started to get in the way because everything needed to be escalated, to be prioritized and to be sequenced. And it ended up being the CXO of whichever relevant function that all that kind of came up and bubbled up to. And it was really kind of slowing us down. So in 2022, we went through a a big exercise to restructure the company and that you know, at a simple level, matrixing everyone from a function into a group. And it was really at that time that there were all these kind of external changes in the market as well, not growth at all costs anymore, but needing to drive towards profitability and efficiency. And so those two things together and kind of what we'd not focused on over the previous 11 years was really getting operational things broadly to work as well as they should or, you know, investing in those kind of core processes and tools and teams in the way that we ideally would have done over those years. I was walking on a beach in South Africa when I was on a holiday and got a call from Hiroki, our CEO, who said, like, how do you feel taking on the operational stuff? 
the line kept cutting out. It's very <laughs> annoying. Uh, like my head wasn't in that space. It was like, in some ways, like a nice score to get, but in some other ways, like totally ruined my holiday. Cause I was thinking like, what is like operations at, at GoCardless? What is the COO role at GoCardless? What was nice is that my, my brain could chew over that stuff in the background. And when I got back to work, I did what any good lawyer does and, and fire up a spreadsheet. I think I've, I'm going to refer to it here if you hear some clicking because um, I needed to get straight in my own head, like what were we trying to do and what was the COR role at GoCardless? Like I said, I think it can be many, many things. I looked at a few different criteria as to what should be within the role and what should be outside of the role. So looked at what's the primary interaction of any given team? Like, is it internal? Is it external? What data do they use? What tools do they use? What KPIs do they drive? A few of the criteria and kind of map this out on a grid. If I squinted at what I did, what was interesting is there were a few blocks of things where there were like clear alignment of some of those teams and processes. And you could almost batch it out. I think I ended up with four different potential collections of COO things. One of them is broadly what Alan is now focused on, right? which is like making our people effective, thinking about how the company works to prioritize effectively and organize itself. And those are things which Alan is now focused on and working on. And I think he's got great experience in that space. There are a lot of other things which also could go within the COO role. The one that I landed on and agreed with Hiroki and the rest of the exec team is what we've called merchant operations, which is a bit of go cardless lingo, merchant being our customer. And broadly, what what is within that area now is all our core operational teams and processes, which have a high degree of impact on our customer. So either they are directly interacting with our customers, so customer support, for example, or they have an outsized impact on our customer. That includes our payment processing team, which is literally the core of what we do as a business. So we brought all those all those different teams together under this new group, Merchant Operations. But what we also did was we reestablished the operations function alongside that to give everyone that kind of has this focus at home, even if they're matrixed into other groups, which includes some of the you know, broader operational things as well. So that's how I would kind of distinguish what I'm doing from what Alan is doing. Alan is doing a lot of the kind of broader company COO type stuff. My mandate is very clear, which is, I think a lot of people use this kind of tour of duty concept now. Mine is to get all these merchant operations areas to a much better place when it comes to kind of efficiency, scalability, customer outcome. And believe me, like there's there's more than enough to be getting on with there for at least a couple of years. And also fits well with your skills as a lawyer, because a lot of this is around how do you make it easy to do business with? That's that's the funny thing. I think people often think of, you know, I keep saying good lawyers and bad lawyers, but a good lawyer is always looking to make things easy, make it the merchant's life or the customer's life. One, one of these, you know, you should almost be invisible. And so I think, yes, there's a lot of kind of, knowledge that comes from that. I think personally as well, the thing we've not touched on is that like I'm a huge geek and I love order and process and efficiency, you know, just at a personal level. And I think that's the other side of myself, which I'm personally enjoying bringing to this role is like being able to do that with a bit more of a, a mandate 
than like just a frustrated lawyer who's saying all this stuff is broken across the company and why can't we do it better? So when you think about uh, the scale-up journey for you know a seed-based company going to Series A, going to B to C, and so on, they really go on a, a journey when it comes to the legal side of it in terms of we're using, at some point, a outside counsel in terms of advisory services or some freelance person or what have you. And then at some point, we graduate into in-house counsel at some stage. Do you have a perspective on that journey in terms of when is the right time to do these things? I often have a lot of discussions with with people who are like, hey, we're thinking about getting a lawyer. Should we do that or not? And that tends to be at quite a consistent stage, actually. It's probably between like 50 and 100 people, company size-wise. The average age is probably around four years. But I don't, I don't think that is true for all. If I think about GoCardless, I joined when they were about four years old. That was really one of the VC investors saying, we think you need a lawyer to go cardless and go cardless literally saying like, I don't think we need you. Why are you even here? And, and that's in a space which is like quite highly regulated, but it was run by some very smart people with good external counsel supporting for a while. So it will vary. They could have brought lawyer in much earlier. I think if you're, you have a much simpler product, you're not in a regulated space, maybe you're B2C. So you don't have a very high volume of kind of business to business legal engagement. You don't need a lawyer as early. But I think there's all the kind of usual metrics you can look at for when it makes sense. You know, if you find yourself spending a million pounds a year on external counsel, you should probably think about why you're doing that. And is it cheaper to bring someone in and take a a load of that work off the external counsel? I think if it's core to your business, so you're in a regulated space, you should probably think about having someone in to make sure they're on top of all the different aspects of that. I mentioned the other one, which I think if you're in, in a B2B space, you're going to have a lot of engagement with other lawyers from your customers. And you know, having someone who understands that and can get you more efficient than not, I think is, is going to really help the business as well. So we go back to that. And this is something kind of going all the way back to the Microsoft conversation. And could you guide us on how much risk, the empowerment plan, like how much risk can you push down? And any other tactical ways of meaning that contracting is much faster for you? And do you need to use external counsel or better if you have internal counsel to use internal? It's always a mix on the last point. You, you won't have an internal counsel that knows everything. So if there's very kind of specialist stuff, you might need to go external for that. But I think, think it's important to start from a reasonable place. You know, so one of the things that frustrated me about being in private practice as a lawyer was that each law firm on any given transaction would tend to start from like opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, it would be literally like, I think the house should be red. And someone else is like, I think the house should be blue. And you both know you're going to end up with like a red and blue house. So like, why are we doing that? It was intensely frustrating. And I think also is one of the reasons why like the private practice model is kind of broken because it's so expensive to, to take that approach. One of the first things that I did when I joined GoCarlos, and I think any good in-house lawyer should be doing this, especially in B2B, is taking a look at the contract and saying, like, how would I react to this, you know, if I received this, amending it accordingly. So the GoCarlos one, I don't think our external counsel were bad, but they were external counsel. You know, so what they provided was it was quite a long document. It took very defensive positions on lots of things. It had, I think, four different schedules. It had a law firm logo on the front of it, 
it was something that would just like aggravate any lawyer you sent it to. In fact, any non-lawyer would probably pick it up and go like, what the fuck is this? I'm going to go and get my external counsel to crawl all over it. You know, and immediately you've like, you've slowed that cycle down. You've incurred lots of fees. And for what? Like for maybe an indemnity if the worst was to come to the worst and the world was to explode. It's unreasonable to take that position and to suffer the consequences of like slow transaction volume because of it. So, you know, I spent a lot of time just taking that apart and putting in what I would call like the midpoint position on things, making things mutual, not going hell for leather on indemnities when you come to liability if something goes wrong, because that is the position you were going to end up negotiating anyway. And it's a reasonable one in terms of risk for the company to take. You should be managing the risk, not managing the consequences of the risk in the contract. You know, tweaks like that, making it prettier, putting a nice logo on the front instead of the company one. I'm a big believer in like visuals and optics of things as well. And then you'll, you'll see if you look at our online terms, also explaining what things mean, you know, for a different audience. So dealing with the lawyer on the kind of negotiator contract side, but if you're a small business owner and you're reading through a bunch of complex terms online, we should explain those to you, you know, and help you understand, like, if there's this scary looking provision in there, which there are in the payment contracts, because, you know, you need to reimburse us if you lose us money, basically, um, on the transaction side, like you get a charge back from a customer. We're going to claim that back from you. But it looks like this kind of quite broad indemnity from our customers. So let's just explain that, you know, let's not expect them to understand why that's in there. Uh, so yeah, a lot of kind of starting from the right place. You bring up a really important point here, which is sometimes what you get from outside counsel, to your point, is a very risk-averse position always across everything. And it creates massive problems in terms of the amount of red lines that then occur, because you're right, they go after it. And suddenly you have like, what should be a simple contracting process turn out to be a real painful process. And I would sit there talking to the lawyer, I'd have to get them to explain what is going on in some level of detail so I can understand what the risk is or what the risk scale is, and then have to figure it out from there a little bit. And the figuring out from my perspective is not from a legal point of view, but simply what seems reasonable. But that whole process of doing that is very long, very painful, very distracting for me as a CEO in a lot of ways. When it comes to things like indemnification and limitation of liability specifically, is there any kind of tips or hints you can give scale-up companies that are in that scenario that I described a little bit to make that less painful somehow outside of hiring in-house counsel in this case? Yeah, that's a good question because you know a lot of what I was saying comes from, I guess, kind of experience and internal calibration. And so I think, say you were to have in-house counsel, there needs to be a degree of trust with you know what their position on things is. But of course, they should be able to explain what that position is to you as well. I think first and foremost, you as the COO or whoever it is that's taking on that responsibility, if it's not a lawyer, you need to kind of understand the risks that the business truly has, how you're managing them, and then how they translate into what it is that you're providing. I guess a classic area for having an indemnity is breaching third-party intellectual property, right? And that is actually quite normal. And I guess to kind of understand why it's normal, we've got to think about the issue a little bit. And so first of all, indemnity means you will reimburse someone like pound for pound what it is that it's cost them to deal with the issue or, you know, the money that they've lost as a result, all those things. Indemnity is like the full fat version of you will make me good again if this happens. 
a step down from that is like damages, which is, okay, I messed up, but what have you actually lost? You know, have you really suffered all this loss that you say you have? So there's a there's an additional test. Therefore, indemnity is kind of more appropriate for where you have a lot of control over something, you know, and you really shouldn't have messed up. So using third-party IP, right, it's like, have you gone and copied someone's like source code or have you copied their design or something? You really shouldn't be doing that. So, you know, that's kind of an accepted position is if you do that and the person you're selling to gets sued as, as a result of you doing that, how that might happen is like, imagine we were selling services to Microsoft. They've clearly got much more money than GoCarless has got. Right, so the person whose IP you've infringed isn't going to come after GoCardless because we've got no money. We have some, but not as much as Microsoft. You know, so they're going to go after Microsoft. So indemnity stuff, you've got a lot of control over. You should be taking good care. Damages is more, it's like the middle ground. And for me, it's the starting position. Right, So you don't start from indemnity. You don't start from trying to protect your position and say, I won't pay you anything if this thing goes wrong. So damages as a starting point, dial up where you've got much more control. You dial it down if you have like no control. You know, so force majeure is typically like there's some kind of terrorist event. You know, that tends to wipe out pretty much all damages and other things in contracts it's because it's not in your control, right? That's like the definition of force majeure. So I say that's like your sliding scale. You've got full control, no control. In the middle is damages. If you go out the door with an indemnity, on stuff which is in the middle and should be damages, you're going to be fighting over that like all day. And, you know, that's broadly where the Go Carlos contract was at. Was like, it was like, you'll indemnify as anything goes wrong and we're not going to give you anything if we mess up. Um, and it was like, it was just totally unreasonable. Damages, then you get more into the nuances around like, okay, how much are we going to pay you if this goes wrong? And I've also got quite a strong view there, which is, it should be linked in some way to the value of the deal that you're doing. And what infuriates me is when you have a lawyer that's like three million pounds, where did that come from? You're like our 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 contract is for 20k and you're you're exactly <laughs> yeah. It's like you're not paying us that much. Like go and get insurance yourself. You have much more control over your own insurance than we have an ability to insure you. So go away. You know, and I think a lot of these like principal positions, if you're very clear on your rationale and why it doesn't work for you as a business, like if we gave everyone a million pounds worth of liability on our contracts, we've got 80,000 customers like transacting with us at any one time. And anything which affects you as a customer is going to affect all our other customers because that's the nature of our platform. So it, it literally makes no sense. And we just won't do the deal with you if that's the, you know, what you're looking for. So I think that there is some basic stuff. You can probably fit it on like a couple of pages as to why you should take position A, B, or C. And that's the other thing on the empowerment side is empowerment is useless without education and understanding. You know, so we make sure we train our sales teams on this stuff. We also have, again, like sales teams are selling, right? They're not trying to become lawyers. So we need to make sure we provide them with like good materials as well. So we've got like a contract explainer which they can send out to their customers. And it's like, this is why we take this liability position. You know, so it shouldn't have to be, I don't know why you would wait to be asked those questions. Like it's, it's much better to be upfront if you've got a reasonable position and just avoid the conversation entirely. Or, you know, if they want to have the conversation, you just like refer back to like paragraph four on 
power explainer. So Ahmed, I think everything that you've said around making the contract easier and more reasonable, giving primers for customers all makes a lot of sense. Where I've seen it be really hard in terms of the implementation is empowering the sales team. And that's different than enabling the team. And you might even say you're empowered and here's all your education, but then they don't really want to take responsibility. How do you switch it so that you actually get the decisions made much earlier or lower in the organization? It's one of those things that it will never be as great as you want it to be, even if you have all the right pieces in place. When I was in that role, I tried to do it a few times each with like increasing levels of success and looking back and trying to figure out why it was bad and what made it better. It can't be a pure legal or ops push. It will 100% fail. And that was my first version was, hey, like this is how you do it. You know, I've seen it work incredibly well at Microsoft. We can do billions of dollars of deals with these processes. There you go, sales team. Disaster. Like total total waste of time and effort. And what changed and made things better on the second run was having our chief revenue officer much more aligned. You know, so we'd swapped one out by that point. The new one had seen it work well before and was like very bought in. It actually wasn't a legal and ops-led thing. It was much more a a sales-led thing. Like this is how you get deals done quickly. It was better. That's when I think we then got into like, okay, conceptually, People kind of support this, but a lot of the the things we put in place just weren't smooth enough. You know, so either getting the change made was too difficult, or people didn't know where the materials are and all that stuff. So you can't just have the the grand concept and kind of have agreement in principle. It actually that needs to work, which I think was more the the right problem to be tackling. And that's when we started looking more at like making sure we go to where sales work. So things need to be in Salesforce if they're going to use them. And it needs to be a smooth process because every bit of friction you add there, like is just, is taking away from that agreement you've got up front. It needs to be all the way from the top, all the way down to how that really works day to day. But the biggest thing by far and away is making sure you get that alignment and the messaging and it being driven from the sales side, at least as equally, if not more so than than from the legal. It's an ongoing thing though. Like if I said it was perfect to go card the stain, every deal was working this way. Like, no, it isn't. You know, and it, I think it's also very variable across the team in terms of their utilization or uptake of these things, which is is the other piece. Like if you get your tooling better, you work on your reporting, as with all things, like then you can actually take more targeted action in terms of, you know, are the teams using it the same? Is it this particular GM who's not driving his team to use all these things we put in place? Is there a problem on international deals where it's always going outside of process? That's where you need to bring the kind of more operational mindset to it to get the process working properly. And if you let it stagnate and you don't fix those things, you're just going to go back to, to square one again. Thank you so much for your time today. Just before we go, If our listeners could only have one takeaway from today, either something you've covered or something you would like to share, what's that one thing? On the legal stuff, I think it's just ask everyone to be reasonable and start from that standpoint. I think on the on the operation stuff generally, I guess it's a question for you, you both actually, is my reflection. 
do you ever get to a place where you feel like it's even 50% done? I started out with what I thought was like quite a clear set of goals and outcomes. And sure, I have done, but I feel like every day there's like another two things that get added to the list of things that I think we we should be working on or doing. Um, so yeah, my reflection is like, feels like a never ending journey being a COO. I think that's a good thing. I also think it's a terrible thing. <laughs> um, you know, if you like to tick off your list every day. So it's a, yeah, a question back because it's something that I'm thinking about. I think it's both in my experience. So you have, you can meet some of those completer finisher needs because you'll have a project to finish depending on how much you box that project in, you can feel a sense of completion. It may be that in the course of that project, you've uncovered another 20 that you need to add to your list. But if you focus on getting that one done and then reevaluating what the next most important thing is, you can look back and realize that you've accomplished a lot. Just don't look forward because then it feels (laughs) like, (laughs) then it feels like you've gotten nowhere. But then also part of it is you know, tech debt and and making up for things that should have been done in the first place. But the other part is growing business, growing market, growing requirements means that it's always going to be changing, which again is why we're in growing businesses. With that, uh, thank you very much, uh, Ahmed Butter, for joining us on the Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And in particular, please subscribe. That'd be wonderful. We definitely appreciate it. And we will see you next week. 